Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karmateksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This talk, given appropriately on April Fool's Day, takes a look at the teachings the Buddha gave about what constitutes real foolishness. Quoting from the book of the Buddha's sayings, the Dhammapada, Lama Kathy comments on the foolish view of selfishness and how we can begin to let go of our foolish ways. Enjoy the podcast. So uh, thanks uh, so much uh, for, the, for the goodies and, uh, and for your presence here today, because from my point of view, your presence here is really my real gift for Easter. And so I, I want to thank uh, everyone from, uh, for being here. Uh, we have some folks who have uh, f- uh, driven here from a long ways away. And I want to thank you and welcome you and so forth. And I also uh, know that there are some folks who are here today who, uh, had, who had come to see us at our old location. And they're here now. So it's like, hi to you too. And thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm guessing that the reason that you're here is that it is April Fool's Day, and the and the topic of the talk was interesting um, because it's about uh, it's about uh, what really is foolish and what is not foolish from a Buddhist perspective. Uh, when I was a, a student of uh, His Eminence Thay Sitra Rinpoche uh, in India a few years ago, I went to India to see him and to receive teachings from him. And when I was uh, visiting with him, uh, he decided, he made the decision that he would have his meditation retreats begin on April Fool's Day. He basically said, we're gonna, we're gonna have our, our, from now on, he said, our Mahamudra meditation retreat will always begin on April Fool's Day. He said the reason for this is he said it's a little bit of a calendar feng shui. (laughs) Calendar feng shui in that uh, he said uh, what we are going to do is we're going to take the energy of April Fool's Day and use it to our benefit in order to show the foolish belief in a false reality. And I said, whoa, (laughs) that's like mind boggling. So in any case, uh, in any case, that's uh, that's why he did it, and so I decided, as a, I guess you could say, as an ins- inspired by his example, that I would do my uh, my uh, talk today on April Fool's Day regarding uh, the the foolish, what's really foolish and what's not really foolish. Thank you so much, because everything is like I, I love getting older, but this is the part I don't like so much. Things, everything is like not sticking. Mm. Ah, the truth of suffering and its causes and, and the truth of happiness and its causes. Happiness is a glass of water. Uh, so let's start with uh, pure intention. And, uh, and so we'll start um, by reciting a short prayer. Uh, this prayer says, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha from now until enlightenment is reached. We, we, need, we need the Buddha around for that long. Uh, and through the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. Uh, so I'll be reciting this uh, uh, just one time in the Tibetan language. If you are familiar with this prayer, you can join in. And if it's a prayer with which you aren't familiar, no worries. Just join in in your heart and in your mind and think that you dedicate this session to the benefit and liberation of all who suffer. O sanje chudang so chi cho naham la Chang chu pardu dani kyap su chi Da ji jin so ji pe su naham ki Dro la pen sanje Okay, thank you. I guess you could say we have a little bit of calendar feng shui going on today. 
Uh, it not only is it April Fool's Day, it's also part of the Passover uh, observance uh, here at, uh, at Tiferet Israel, and it's also Easter Sunday, so we've got a, a trifecta going on. Um, so um, once again, thanks to everybody for being here. Um, the, uh, the, what I'm going to share with you today, it comes from the words of the Buddha. Uh, the actual words of the Buddha. Uh, he, um, uh, he lived uh, for 80 years and taught for about 45 of those. And uh, during, this, um, uh, during this time, he gave uh, many, 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 many teachings. And after his death, those teachings were systematized into the scriptures that we know today, the Buddhist scriptures that we know today. And um, and so what I'm going to be sharing uh, with you uh, today is uh, some uh, of the words of the Buddha about foolishness. And it comes from uh, the, the collection of his sayings called the Dhammapada. Dhamma means truth and pada means path, literally means path, so the Dharma path. And uh, this particular translation is, um, is a favorite of mine. And so... Um, uh, so I, I want to share this. And by the way, I have to I have to tell you something about this little book. Um, this uh, let the record show that I am holding a really old and falling apart copy of the Shambhala Pocket Classics edition of the Dhammapada, and and it's not just that it's uh, kind of old uh, and dog-eared, but uh, this was my dad's. This belonged to my dad, so I get to so I get to spend a little time with my dad this morning. And, um, and sometimes that's a good thing. I've been thinking about him this week. Um, he passed away uh, in 2012, and I still miss him. And so what's really fun is to see all the things he underlined in the book and the things that he thought were important uh, about this book. And so in a way, he's sharing with me this morning, and he's going to share with you some of his understanding <laughs> of what he thought was important in the Buddhist words. You have to remember, my dad uh, grew up a Baptist, and that's a, that's a little bit of something to overcome there. But I grew up Catholic, so kind of something to overcome there too. Mm. Uh, but um, when, I, when I began practicing Buddhist meditation, um, he was at first troubled by it because he didn't understand it. And then uh, after a while, he kind of got used to the idea that I was doing something different. And he said, okay, so like, tell me what this is about. And so, uh, so that's um, uh, why I gave him this book. And uh, after he passed away, I found it among his things. And he really read this book. He underlined and put stars next to things. And so a little bit of everything here. So uh, in this book, the, the Buddha begins this book by explaining the Four Noble Truths. Um, which is, he says, we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world, which I think is a pretty powerful statement all by itself. We are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world. So it's not as though the world is imposed on us necessarily from the outside, but it's, it's not the world that's imposed on us from the outside. It's how we react to and respond to that world that is important. Uh, it's not what life hands us, but what we do with what it hands us. And so the Buddha said that how you experience things is with your mind. You experience things, yes, you experience things with your body, but you also experience them with your mind, which is why two people can go to the same restaurant at the same day and have the same food and have two completely different reactions because they're bringing to that meal their different karmic experiences, their different backgrounds, their different feelings about food. Maybe you don't like breakfast. You know, maybe you have negative connotations with breakfast and so forth and so on. So the idea here is that we are what we think hands to us the power to work on our situation. We don't have to feel victimized by the universe. We can actually begin to work with what is happening in our life. And then he says, and then in the next section of that uh, opening chapter, he says, if we think, speak, and act with a pure mind, happiness follows us like a shadow that is unshakable. And if we think, speak, and act with an impure mind, suffering follows us just as surely as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. 
So he's basically here talking about the Four Noble Truths. Suffering is part of life. That's the first noble truth. It's part of life. We can't necessarily avoid it. We might like to. We might like to take the bus and miss it, but the idea is that suffering is part of life. But secondly, the, uh, the cause of suffering is not what is happening externally, but how we respond to it internally. So um, the idea here is that the cause of suffering is not the external world, but what's going on in our own mind. The, the cause of suffering, according to the teachings of the Buddha, is uh, clinging and fixation. Clinging and fixation. I know some texts say the word desire, but I like clinging and fixation because it's sort of willful. And so what we are uh, uh, advised by the Buddha is that by clinging to things and fixating on things, we suffer. I think anybody who has read the news lately can see how this works. People, yeah, we fixate on people, we fixate on things, places, situations, and we try to make them, we try to bend everything to our way of thinking, but it doesn't work out like that. And so uh, because of our clinging and fixation, we suffer. And uh, as uh, Pema Chodron, the modern Buddhist teacher, she says, things hurt so much because I hold them, to hold them so tightly. And so, of course, the third noble truth, which is the solution to suffering, is that the solution to clinging and fixation is to learn how to let go. How to let go of clinging and fixation on people, on things, on, uh, on situations, and also on our sense of who we think we are. Because as you know, most arguments start <laughs> when somebody uh, insults our, uh, our understanding of the world. Well, you're a this or you're a that, and they call us a name, and it's uncomfortable, and we don't like it, or they say we're bad, or they say that we're not intelligent, or they say all kinds of terrible things to us. Many arguments start because we think someone has disrespected us. And so as a result of this, arguments arise. And so how do we respond to this argument? How do we respond to this feeling of being disrespected? by looking into what's going on in the mind of the other person, the suffering that's going on in their mind. But it's going to take us a little while to get there. I would like to see the talking heads on television do this. Don't you think that would be fun? If the talking head, one was calling the other a name, and one said, you know, it really hurts when you call me that. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway I'm, I'm always hoping that things will change, but anyway. So what we, um, so what we do uh, in, in uh, studying and understanding the Four Noble Truths is we understand that suffering is part of life, that it has a cause, which is clinging and fixation. It has a solution, which is letting go of clinging and fixation. And then there's a path that leads to the end of clinging and fixation. And that path is the path of learning how to let go. And the path consists of three very simple things. Doing no harm to yourself or to others. Practicing, and taking, practicing virtue and taking care of yourself and others, and taming your mind through the practice of meditation so that you understand the process of clinging and fixation and learn how to unravel it from within. And this is why uh, all Buddhist practice begins and ends with meditation, because by taming the mind through meditation, we can begin to see our sometimes hidden motivations. Sometimes our motivations are so deeply hidden, they're hidden even from ourselves. And we don't know that we're clinging to something until we begin to feel that pain. And so if we can meditate, we can get a little bit more information about ourselves and learn how to live our lives in a way where we don't cause harm to ourselves and don't cause harm to others. So anyway, that's the introduction. But uh, this chapter that the Buddha is talking about foolishness, uh, he's going to talk about what real foolishness is as opposed to what not real foolishness is. Uh, for example, uh, I could feel foolish uh, because I have a stain on my on my Zen. I could it's here someplace. I can't I think I've actually put it on backwards today. So I have a big ink pen stain on on my on my shawl today. And my because my shawl is white, I could feel foolish because I have this ink stain. On, uh, on my, and I, and I feel foolish because people will think that I am the ink stain person and not the, and not the Buddhist follower. But there are lots of things that can make us feel foolish. Uh, not knowing something when we're asked a question, that can make us feel foolish. 
Uh, Kemper Rinpoche taught me how to deal with that, by the way. He said uh, the three most powerful words in that answer are, I don't know. And he said, if you can actually say, I don't know, to someone who is looking to you for an answer, uh, that's a powerful beginning to a conversation. And that he said, you can also say to them, I'll see you next week and I'll give you the answer then because I'm going to look it up. Or now in the modern days of Wikipedia, I can say, wait a moment, and then try to look it up for them. So there's lots of ways that we can feel foolish. We can feel foolish when we go to work and we're supposed to give a presentation and we forget the notes. Mm -hmm. We can feel foolish when uh, we um, accidentally call somebody by somebody else's name. Uh, we can, uh, I've done that. Um, in fact, I think I did it this morning. Uh, sorry, guys. Uh, and so there's lots of things we can do where we feel foolish. You've all experienced this. But uh, the Buddha has a different view of this. He, he talks about the, the fool who is missing the way. He says, uh, how long the night lasts? How long the night to the watchman? How long the road to the weary traveler? How long the wandering of many lives to the fool who misses the way? So he starts by, uh, by talking about how, um, how in everyday life we can see things as being very long. I remember being young and thinking how long it took for a day to end. And now that I'm older, it ends like this. I don't, has anybody else experienced this? Are you guys, are you guys with me on this? Like times, it's speeding up, right? And I, is it speeding up because the end's getting closer? Is that why? <laughs> the moving walkway is coming to an end. So, but he's saying here that there's lots of things that can seem long, but what really seems long is, uh, is, the, uh, is this world of cyclic existence that the Buddha called samsara, where we keep living lifetime after lifetime without knowing how to, uh, to liberate ourselves from suffering, without knowing how. I mean, it's like, how did we feel before we learned to meditate? I had, I had a lot of problems, and I still have them, but I feel better about them now <laughs> because I meditate. And so... Um, I think that the key piece here is uh, knowing and being able to meditate and know your mind is a powerful thing. And that helps us to be liberated from the many types of foolishness. Then he goes on and says, if the uh, traveler cannot find a master or a friend to go along, let them travel on alone rather than with a fool for company. In other words, um, uh, uh, if we are traveling with a person who doesn't exactly know where they're going, it's, it's much worse than going by yourself. And, uh, and so then, uh, then the, the Buddha quotes this, this fool as uh, the, the, the inner dialogue of the fool. What is the inner, what is the inner dialogue? What is the fool thinking about? Uh, my family, my wealth, my home. So the fool troubles himself. But how has he, family or wealth, he is not even the master of his own mind. How can he have anything? So the idea is that the, what the Buddha says, where we are really foolish is by turning things over and over and over in our mind, over and over again, and telling ourselves why we should dislike this person, or why we should dislike that person, or why this is unfair, or why that is unfair, going over and over and over. Some people call it rumination, where we kind of stew about something, and that this is what really brings about foolishness. Because a, a person who stews like that and who ruminates like that doesn't know how to free themselves from rumination and foolishness. That's where real foolishness comes from. And then my favorite line in this whole, in this whole section, he says, the fool who knows he is a fool is that much wiser. I think this is important. We have to know that we're missing something. <laughs> the fool who knows he is a fool this is why when we watch television and we see the various stories played out in television programs, comedies, and movies, the character we always feel a little bad for is the fool who doesn't know that she or he is a fool. 
and goes on with their foolish plans and everybody is laughing at them and they can't figure out, why is everyone laughing at me? I'm so smart. And the reason we find these things funny is because we've all been that person. Well, maybe, maybe you're not ready to admit that, but I know I am. I'm just saying. I'm... The, fool, the fool who thinks that they are wise is a fool indeed. Does, and I like this one's really interesting. Does the spoon taste the soup? A fool may live all of his life in the company of a master and still miss the instructions on the way. <laughs> there, there's a great story talked to, uh, in, about the uh, master of our tradition, the Karmapa. And he is, uh, once said, the people who live with me, they don't see me. But the people who really see me are the people who live at a distance. In other words, the people who live so closely are often caught up in intrigue and uh, trying to compete to be the best and be the master's uh, favorite. And because they're so caught up in their little drama, they miss the teachings. They don't see them. And so uh, he said, but the people who are distant from me and have faith in me from afar, uh, who aren't caught up in all of this, they're the ones who benefit the most. So uh, then he says, the spoon does not taste the soup, but the tongue is the one that tastes the soup. So if you are, in, uh, if you are awake in the presence of a master, one moment of that master's teaching will show you the way. I think this is very true. If, uh, even if we just get a little droplet of, uh, of teaching from a great person, we keep it forever. We keep it. We always remember it. Now, here are the, uh, here are the four verses that my dad seemed to like the best. Uh, the fool is his own enemy. The mischief he does is his undoing. Why do what you will regret? Why bring tears upon yourself? Do only what you do not regret, and you fill yourself with joy. Uh, that's, thanks, Dad. Um, I think that's really a, a, good, a good lesson from my dad. Um, the idea, what, do only what you do not regret, and fill yourself with joy. Well, we all have to do things at work or at home that we regret and feel bad about. But we can change how we feel about things by uh, applying one or two simple techniques. The first is mindfulness. When we do the practice of meditation, uh, we allow our mind to rest on the breath as it comes in and goes out. And that when thoughts arise in meditation and they draw our attention away, we gently bring back our attention to the object. And two things are taught there. One, we train our attention slowly and gradually. But the other thing we learn is the gentleness of bringing our mind back, treating ourselves as though we were our most precious child. I think a lot of people forget that, they, uh, that their mind is like their most precious child, and that just as they wouldn't be mean to their most precious child, they should not be mean to themselves. They should parent themselves in a way that is kind and gentle. And that is why we have, that we have what's called the middle way. We notice our distraction, but we bring it back. We bring our attention back with gentleness because that gentleness is then applied to us. And then when it's applied to us, we get the idea of gentleness that it's just as effective as harshness. And uh, in fact, might be more effective because it's pleasant. And then we might apply that gentleness to other people. And, uh, and be able to have a heart full of love toward others. And so um, that's the first skill that we learn from meditation, is that training of attention through mindfulness and the gentleness of bringing the mind back. But the other thing that we are, um, we are really learning uh, in meditation is how we think. We actually can see our thought processes. Has anybody experienced this? where once you've meditated and you get up and walk around in your everyday life, you see your motivations where you didn't see them before, and at first it's a little disappointing. Like, do you mean I'm really thinking this about that person? Because we have to take responsibility for what we think. Because remember, the Buddha said, we are what we think, all that we are. So it's a, it can be a little nerve-wracking at first, but 
if we can begin to take that responsibility and begin to nurture our own gentleness and nurture our own mindfulness, then we can become like an older, an older sibling to ourselves or a grandparent to ourselves or a parent to ourselves and be a person who can actually nurture us and move us along the path. We can actually be our own friend instead of our own uh, uh, taskmaster. I don't know. Do anybody? I have a taskmaster in my head. She's not always nice. She's not always nice. Sometimes she's a little mean to me. I have to tell her to relax. So I do that. So um, at any rate, uh, what, uh, what, he's, uh, what the Buddha is talking about here, um, he's talking about what the, uh, the fool who refuses to see the truth of the world. He says, whatever they learn, it only makes them uh, duller. Knowledge uh, uh, is too much for his brain. For then he wants recognition, a place before other people, a place over other people. The inner dialogue, he quotes the, the fool's inner dialogue. Let them know my work. Let everyone look to me for direction. Such are the fool's desires, such is his uh, swelling pride. Look not for recognition, but follow the awakened and set yourself free. So he's saying here, the true fool is the one who doesn't understand the causes of suffering and the solutions to suffering, but rather is concerned only with the external outer world and their place in that world. And that they then treat other people as though they were merely stepping stones to get to that place. And because they mistreat themselves and mistreat others, they are not loved. And because they are not loved, uh, they continue to lose their way and they have trouble finding it. And so what the last verse in this section says is it says, look not for recognition, but follow the awakened beings and set yourself free. So the, our own future is put into our hands by this chapter. The Buddha is saying, uh, don't be a foolish person who is looking only for themselves alone, but find your own mind through meditation and be of benefit and take care of both yourself and others. And that this will bring about a wisdom within you and will help to liberate you from suffering. So um, that the so this is a little bit of a short talk today because sometimes I, I will give longer ones, but I kind of want to leave it here because if I if I go too deeply into the into this uh, section, uh, I think it might uh, uh, what is it muddy the water a little bit. But the the part that really um, touched me here were the, th the three things. The fool who knows he is a fool is that much wiser. So the, the people who know that they are a little bit lost, they look for a master and a path and find their way. And then he says, uh, do only what you do not regret and fill yourself with joy, meaning don't harm yourself and don't harm others. And then lastly, uh, this, uh, this last line, look not for recognition, but follow the awakened and set yourself free. Because the Buddha can only show us the way. We actually have to walk it. And so that's, it's left to us to actually practice meditation and mindfulness and actually practice that gentleness. That gentleness that is so important to our taking good care of ourselves and benefiting others. So um, I think I'm going to leave it here uh, and then see what kind of a discussion we can have because uh, the discussion section where people ask questions, uh, maybe you want to recount your own foolishness. Maybe you want to recount uh, something that you learned. Maybe you want to tell a story about, uh, about yourself and find out where, what's foolish and what's not foolish. <laughs> Um, or whatever, but uh, we have the, the microphone open for discussion. So if we have a, a cut, you can just go and line up and we'll take as many people as we can. Yeah. Mm 
Yeah, thank you, Joseph. Yay, all right. Okay, all right. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Um, so towards the beginning, you mentioned that the Buddha said that we sort of are what we think. Yeah. Um, but through my studies and through other talks you've given, I've sort of come to understand that the nature of mind is clear light and mm -hmm. emptiness and that we aren't necessarily the thoughts that arise right. within right. us, that right. the true nature of our mind is something different. Right. Right. Can you yeah. elaborate on this? Please? Yeah, I can. Um, the, uh, the, when the Buddha taught, when the Buddha first began teaching, um, he, he was um, somewhat wise in that he taught to that specific audience. And so the specific audience, the very first audience who was listening to him, and this is according to the teaching of Bokar Rinpoche in his book, The Profound Wisdom of the Heart Sutra. The first group of people he was speaking to were, uh, were Hindus. And uh, they believed in uh, something called Atman, uh, a, like a permanent self. And so the first thing he had to do was, uh, was to get their attention through talking about karma in a way they could understand. And so that's why he started with, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world. In other words, if he talks about what's called relative truth, the external truth, the truth of how things appear, that would, uh, that would satisfy their minds that he was a wise person, and they would begin to listen to him. It wasn't until much later that he introduced the idea that not only is the self composed of parts, you know, form and feeling and, and uh, mental formation, uh, sense, you know, uh, perception and consciousness. So he said this, what we think of as being a unitary permanent self is not really unitary and permanent. It's actually composed of parts, and all those are composed of parts. And the process of perception, it has different parts. It's not all one thing. And he began to talk to them about how to break down the, the, um, the fictional idea of a permanent self. Once that fictional idea of a permanent self was broken down, then he can say, he could say, but you know, the self is not who you are. You are the mind, and the mind is like this. And then he began to talk from the point of view of, rel of ultimate truth. So for those of us who are beginning in Dharma, we first have to understand what mind, how mind appears to us, the relative truth. We have thoughts. How do we work with those thoughts? Because if the Buddha were to say, your mind is light, this clear, uh, unimpeded light, we would go, uh-huh. We might not be able to understand it because our karma may not be the karma to get that message right away. We might have to get to that message step by step by step. So it is both. The, the relative truth is that, yes, we are what we think, but what is thinking and uh, who or what is, is giving rise to those thoughts. That's for later on. Does, does that make sense? Yes, thank you, Amaka. Okay, no problem. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why in shamatha, the very first practice, we quiet the flow of thoughts. And then eventually through what's called vipassana or insight meditation, we begin to then look at the mind itself and see what it is. And that's why those are taught uh, uh, serially one after the other. So we learn shamatha first, and then once the mind is quiet, then we can begin to look at it with the insight of vipassana. So that's, the Buddha was, uh, I think, super clever. Yeah. yeah. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, super clever, is that? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a technical term. Thank you to the Easter Bunny, I have, or, or the Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva Bunny. Yeah. So I was uh, reflecting this morning and on something I was reading and uh, the idea about our thoughts are frequently about things that have happened in the past, mm -hmm. things that happened in the future. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I recognize that a lot of my uh, identity mm -hmm. is defined in this constant right. conscious and unconscious kind of reflection upon all these things. So mm -hmm. who I am is right. these things I'm going to be doing. Right. And things that I have done. Mm -hmm. So when we develop a practice of staying in the present, mm -hmm. uh, the question arose for me is like, who am I then? Mm -hmm. If I'm not 
this past and I'm not this future. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, I really appreciate you bringing this story to us because um, I think that when people first start meditating, I'm going to say a few words about meditation and then I'll uh, work, work with, with the question. Um, when we first start meditating, we say, gosh, this is difficult. This is not easy. I have to, I'm doing something that feels unnatural. I'm doing something that feels weird and unnatural. And, and my, my teacher, Kempo Carter Rinpoche, he said, yeah, it's going to feel like that for a while <laughs> because you're used to interacting with all of your thoughts. Almost, uh, he didn't use the analogy of a pinball machine because he had probably never seen one. But that's really what it is. We're going from thing to thing to thing. And then when we quiet that down, then we can actually begin to recognize and have these little insights, not the insight into the nature of mind, but little insights into how we create our experience through not being present. Okay, we're in the past, or we're in the future, or we're analyzing the now, like, oh, that was tasty candy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, we're, we're busy being someplace other than where we are. And I think that the, um, the, 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 the key piece of this is to first recognize that that's what's happening, and then to, be, uh, to learn how to uh, be in the moment without wanting something to happen not wanting to have some kind of brilliant illumination or, you know, or have some kind of transcendent experience, but just to be. I think that ancient people and even modern people sitting on the bank of a river can get an idea because if they just watch what's going on, what's going past them on the river, the twigs and the leaves and so forth, that they can just watch that river without getting involved in the story, they, can, they have an insight that they can, their mind can just be. And we can slowly get to the place with our own thoughts where we can watch the thoughts manifest and go. We can actually watch the arising and the disappearance of a thought and gain an insight into how that thought might have influenced us and where we might have gone because of that thought. And that awareness is, is what's next cultivating that awareness of the mind and the awareness of the processes. And so your question, I think, was, who are we? Is that, was that your question? Correct. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So, well, as you say that, uh, I, there's a curiosity okay. to perhaps define identity, and perhaps that's not even a relevant question. But I understand. It is a question that sure. has arisen, and it right. you know, creates some confusion. Sure. For that. So right. I, guess, I guess that's the Okay. The, the Thank challenge. you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for you know, bringing that. Uh, because um, in the, uh, in, when we first start practicing Dharma, we, we are doing a lot of things that are unhelpful. <laughs> to ourselves. We have a lot of bad habits. That's the way Kempo Carter Rinpoche said it. He says we start with a lot of bad habits and then the next stage is that we replace the bad habits with good habits. And then we go beyond habit altogether through understanding the nature of mind. And so uh, where you are is at the place where you realize that identity is kind of fictional and movable I mean, who we are is changing from instant to instant to instant to instant. And at first, it's kind of a freak out. Oh, my gosh, I'm not who I thought I was. This is freaky. I don't know about this. This feels really strange. But it also can be the, uh, the birth of a possibility. Like, I could become someone. I could become something. If I can change how I'm thinking, then I can become something better. And so it's still relative truth. And that's why at this particular point, we introduce the, the practice of the bodhisattva, the practice of bodhicitta, the mind of awakening. Bodhi means awakening and citta means mind. And so that's why it's important now at this juncture in your, in your practice to start really studying bodhicitta because in bodhicitta practice, we're encouraged to think of others as being like us. You know, people want the same things we want. 
They're confused the same way we're confused. They think they're real. I mean, okay, I've already talked about this one before, but I have to do it again. Toy Story 2. Okay, have I told this story already? Somebody, somebody, you may have heard this. Anyway, I told it last week in um, North Carolina. Uh, Toy Story 1, it's, uh, there's a little toy named Buzz Lightyear, and he thinks he's a space ranger, but he's, he's really a toy. And he has this, like, existential crisis when he finds out that he's not a real space ranger and that he's actually a toy. Do, do people know this? I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm telling you something. Anyway, so in the second movie, he, I mean, he has this, like, spiritual awakening that he realizes he's not really real, that his identity was kind of fake, and it freaks him out at first, but then he finds a new identity as a toy, and he's really happy because he can make children happy and blah, 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 this and that, so he has a new way of living. He became a bodhisattva. It's kind of cool. So uh, first he was like a fake person, and then he was still kind of fake because he thinks he's a bodhisattva, but it's all right, you know? He's, it, he's doing, at least he's not hurting people. So in the second movie, he encounters another toy who thinks he's a space ranger, and he has no self-awareness at all. And at one point, the, uh, the, uh, the enlightened toy, the enlightened Buzz Lightyear, looks at the camera and says, was I ever this deluded? <laughs> Those are the exact words. Watch it. He says, what I, was I ever this deluded? Was I really this deluded? And so what happens is, is that we have this aha moment when we see that the uh, self-identity is kind of moving and, and, and fictional. And, and so then at that point, it's super important to put on ourselves the discipline of thinking of others and uh, practicing love toward ourselves and toward others, because that love is what fills up that spot that, was, that used to be identity. That love and compassion fills that spot up, and it helps us to keep moving until and to get the bravery to actually look at what mind is and see what you, the first questioner was talking about about the the limitless uh, clarity of mind. So uh, the bodhisattva vow is, and the bodhisattva practice right now, uh, doing the, the compassion meditation of Tonglen, imagining that as you breathe out, you give happiness to others, and as you breathe out, you remove their suffering. Doing this kind of practice is really important at this point because it forms new habits of identity. We're the one who's practicing bodhicitta. You know, and then slowly the the teacher will introduce us to what the, who that bodhisattva is. Okay, does that help? Okay, that, yeah, okay. Thank you for being patient. Sometimes I have to, it takes me a little while to answer a question. I have to do it step by step. I remember what it was like to be, to like have read something and go like, whoa. But th that kind of freaked me out too when I, when I first realized, oh my gosh, I'm like making this up. Wow. Who am I really? And it's like the Buddha said we've always existed as discrete individuals. We're not part of one big mind. It's not like that. We're all discrete individuals, and each of us has always existed from the no beginning of time and always will exist to the no ending of time. So we are discrete individuals, but, it's, but the identification of that is always moving. And so, and in fact, in, uh, in have I shown you this book, Great Path of Awakening? <laughs> this is a running gag here for anybody. Uh, this is the only book I've ever read. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. In, in this book, in this book, it says that even after you become enlightened, all there is to do is to enact the benefit of others with non-referential compassion. Because now, once you've become an enlightened being, your compassion is as wide as your mind and includes everyone. That's like, I want to sign up for that job. Anyhow, so thank you for... Yes. Hi. Hey, Lana Kathy. Hey. Uh, just first a comment. Um, you know, seeing, you know, hearing all the stuff that's been taught over the years... Um, the Dhammapada, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't have necessarily a historical reference, but I mean, I think of it as just kind of like the pure Dharma, like mm -hmm. it's just like original, yeah. old school, right. you know, theology. So <laughs> right. uh, I like that and more mm -hmm. of that. And the fact that it comes, it was your dad's, that's even better. Yeah, I know. That's a, it's like it's like he's got his 12 stuff, stuff in here, too. Yeah, so it's like, really... oh, damn, Dad, I love you. Anyway, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Anyway, mm -hmm. so that's really great. Yeah. Um, just something that was um, uh, in the words there, you know, talked about uh, foolish action, like the, the rumination. And, yeah. You know, back in the day, hopefully longer ago than 
not so long than ago. like last week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm known to ruminate, and I know um, for me at least that was about you know being uh, uh, hyper vigilant. Sure. Um, and so, you know, back probably, hopefully longer ago than shorter time ago, mm -hmm. I think that I probably would have grasped onto that, and I would have just focused on, you know. Like, right. Don't be foolish. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe a more kind of Hinayana approach to it and being more renunciatory mm -hmm. about not ruminating. Mm -hmm. But, you know, oh, yeah, I, just just uh, just turning away from it. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but at least for me and, you know, dealing mm. with that, mm. I wasn't the most skillful. I mean, it was like a good, you know, they, they say we all start in, at the Hidiana. You know mm -hmm. that sort of thing, mm -hmm. but moving away from that, and I think you kind of brushed up before, you know, through analytical or insight meditation, mm -hmm. um, I was able to, you know, explore that more. Mm -hmm. And usually for me, it came back to you know where's mm -hmm. my mind, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then from there, you know, dive deeper, right? But I guess uh, I would love to hear, uh, I would love to hear some more commentary on you know kind of moving from that into because for me at least. I know when I first, you know, was looking into those kind of questions, you know, I could very easily mm -hmm. grasp onto just like, oh, I shouldn't be foolish. Right. But I don't, uh, for me at least. Right. You know, yeah, that, certain kind of that, might, that might work mm -hmm. for some people, but I would imagine for mm -hmm. other folks, mm -hmm. you know, just stopping there may not be enough. And I, and I really understand that. Right. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think uh, we do all have very complex karma. I mean, uh, the, the fact that, um, that uh, I understand some things and don't understand other things, and some big words challenge me, and some even Dharma concepts still sort of befuddle me, even after all this time. You know, that's it's hard. It's hard to kind of be confused by by the teachings sometimes. But um, I think that the um, that the three what they call the three paths or the three yanas. Yana means like path or vehicle or method. And the Hinayana is the, the, the path of individual liberation, which means turning away from negative thoughts, turning away from negative actions, and so forth, and refraining and abstaining from uh, doing negative things to help to improve our mind stream because we're not as, when we don't do negative things, we're not as worried about people coming up behind us to get even or to chase us because of all the bad stuff we've done. Uh, your mind is naturally more at ease. And then uh, the maha, or greater uh, yana, or a greater method, is to open one's heart up to um, thinking about others with love and compassion, thinking about ourselves with love and compassion. And then finally, the vajrayana, it's called vajra, or indestructible, because it has to do with that indestructible nature of the mind that is, uh, that is really at its um, ultimate uh, pure and limitless and clear. And I think that uh, we may have an intellectual understanding of the progression, cleaning up our karma, being compassionate, and being insightful into the nature of mind. But just knowing it intellectually is not enough. We have to actually practice. And, and what my teacher told me, um, Kemperovici told me, he said that um, instead of calling it Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, you should call it three Yana Buddhism because we practice all three of them kind of simultaneously. Because he said the very best practitioner is a person who has the outer conduct of the Hinayana, meaning they don't hurt themselves and don't hurt others. They have the inner motivation of the Bodhisattva, that they're cultivating love for themselves and love for others. And they have the most inner conduct of the Vajrayana, meaning that they are attempting to see the true nature of themselves and all things all the time. Well, that takes a while. You have to learn all of that. And so what Rinpoche said you could do was he said you can start with a simple question. Who? He, he taught us this, like he taught us our very first Mahamudra meditation like two years after the center was started, like back in 1979. He said, oh, you guys are ready for Mahamudra. Here's, a, here's an exercise for you. He said, it, it, when you have a mild mental affliction, like you're mildly irritated or you're mildly impatient or mildly whatever, he said, ask yourself, who's feeling that? And then go try to find it. He says, you won't find anybody because there's nobody there. 
And, and he said, uh, and that is a way to slowly sort of poke a hole into our tendency to solidify everything. And, uh, and so later, he said that um, when a person experiences any mental affliction, impatience or uh, irritation, frustration, anger, whatever, he said they can start by asking themselves, who's feeling this? Or where is the mind that is feeling this? He says, and if that doesn't bring you any result, then start having compassion for that feeling, saying, I feel this, uh, this frustration and may my frustration contain the frustration of all beings and may we all be free of frustration. In other words, using love and compassion on it. And he said, and then if that doesn't help you and you're still feeling really angry and frustrated, he said, then you have to use the Hinayana method of just turning away from it, saying, you know, if I keep doing this, it's going to hurt me. And so in that way, he created what I might call a protocol Start with, uh, start with the highest view, the Vajrayana view, then, then back down to the Mahayana view, and then back down to the Hinayana view. And you have to do this every day with everything. So it's not like, uh, oh, I'm a Vajrayana practitioner now. I can't do that turning away from evil thing. Oh, yeah, you can. <laughs> so um, uh, so I, um, I apologize for perhaps missing the point of your question, uh, but I wanted to say a few things about uh, the fact that we are always looking at our minds and always evaluating what's going to help us the most. And sometimes denial is actually going to be just fine. Hopping on, hop. I have 12 strep friends that tell me that, okay, denial is, is like really bad, but sometimes it's, it's where you, it's what helps you survive. It's a spiritual shock absorber. Spiritual shock absorber. I like that. Yeah. And sometimes we, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. And sometimes it just is, it's all we can do in a situation. But then slowly but surely we come to a more of a knowledge of, of how that works. Does that help? I, I, I mean, it, I don't think it answered the question oh, yeah. directly, but it backed into it very nicely. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I do. I, think where we need I, I am having that kind of a day. Yeah, I, I, I am having, wrong with that. I am having that how, kind of a day. you got to get there. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. If that, that noise you hear is the beep. Beep, beep, beep. I'd be backing into that question, so thank you very much. Uh, uh, Tim, you'll be the last question this morning. I looked at the clock before. Yeah, you came up. Yeah, came there up we to go. to be sure that I wasn't imposing on everybody's yeah, no, that's, that's Easter good. plans. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Easter plans. Well, the conversation's evolved a little bit from the fool, I suppose. I oh, that's all right. Just come on identify down. identify with that. Yeah. But yeah. What I, <laughs> a, a lot of your answers have used the word compassion, and I'm yeah. back here with my uh, regular problem of feeling like I'm not very compassionate. Right. No, and I, I heard the other day that uh, pity is the nearest enemy of compassion. Wow. And I feel like that's where I'm at. Yeah, you know, I mean, when mm-hmm. I see something that's sad or something, I feel sorry for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I don't. I, I want to know how to move from that to whatever compassion is. I mean, I don't really understand mm-hmm. it. So obviously, yeah. no. If I'm, I, I, and I if get I'm stuck that. on pity, then. So well, you want to talk a little bit about that? To yeah, help me? Um, I I have one problem uh, in talking about pity, and that is that uh, I've read Tolstoy uh, and. <laughs> And, uh, and, and in Russian, you know, the word pity has a little bit of a different meaning. And so it translates into English as pity, and everybody goes, oh, that's not the right word. But anyway, um, uh, because, he, because Tolstoy actually felt that pity was useful, because that it helped us to get outside of the situation. You see what I'm saying? It's like we, we're no longer only concerned with ourselves. Uh, it, even though pity, as as it's translated into English these days, I'm going to uh, put that qualifier on it. Uh, when I feel sorry for someone, I am in a way putting myself in the superior position, accidentally or on purpose. I am superior to them because I am not suffering from what they're suffering from. So that's where I would see pity as being a downfall in some ways is because it still sets up the idea that I'm superior to the person I pity, okay? However, however, that is not always true. 
It's not always true because sometimes that, that feeling sorry for somebody, you feel sorry for them because you've been there and you wish they wouldn't suffer. You see what I'm saying? So you can't 100% say pity is bad. You see what I'm saying? If, if, if it has to do with me feeling superior to somebody else and that I am going to help them, you know, with some kind of, you know, fictional uh, heroism, that's probably a problem. But pity in and of itself is not necessarily bad and that it makes us aware that there is suffering outside of ourselves and that we need to pay attention and not just be only uh, uh, absorbed in our own suffering. Does that make sense? I guess not. Because uh, well, I'm not seeing I'm not seeing a nod. I'm seeing not yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to put it in context of karma, and I'm thinking, you know, when I see them, I think, well, I wonder what they've done to to okay put themselves in that position. All and, right. And look at myself and say, well, what have I done to keep myself out of that position? Okay. I I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of rambling here, but these it, are this it's is okay. the process that I seem to find myself in. It's actually okay. Um, it's okay to ramble and it's okay to wander because um, I can make a little joke about it and say, they say we wander in samsara until we get enlightened. So we're all wandering together. And that's why I'm so pleased to see so many of you because we're all wandering, we're all falling down, but we're all here doing it together. And I just wanted to say that because I'm feeling a little bit of a gratitude attack at the moment for all of you. This happens from time to time. But, um, but to address the, the question of karma, Kem- Kempo Kartha Rinpoche was asked once, um, well, isn't it wrong to help a person who is suffering because after all they're working out their karma and do we want to interfere with that? And Rinpoche was quite sharp about this. He said, never let the belief in karma stop you from helping someone. Never let the belief in, never let the, your belief in karma stop you from having compassion for someone. Because uh, he said uh, that, that you can see kind of what happens when we feel we're superior to somebody else. Then we, then we lose the ability to understand where they're coming from. We lose the ability to really hear them because we're building a wall between us and them. And so the, I, this is why in Tonglen we break down the barrier by imagining on the out-breath that we give them our happiness and on the in-breath by imagining we remove their suffering. We're trying to move that wall, make it go. So I think you're on the right track by thinking of others, definitely on the right track. And how you think of others will change over time. Also, how we think about ourselves will change over time. So, yeah. Sorry if I didn't answer the question. Well, it's, it's a long discussion. So okay, we'll, all right. We'll have some more. Let's, 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 yeah, let's continue because, um, yeah, it, being aware of other people's karma is kind of cool. Yes? Um, well, so I work in psychiatric care. Yeah. And I deal with a lot of creative people. And, uh, Something that I ask myself every time is not what did they do to get here, it's what happened to them or what circumstances did they have to face that right. led them to make this decision. Right. And that's something that helps me having to be compassionate right. every single day. That, right. You know, I don't know what happened to them or maybe there's something out of their control. Right. And you have that slight, like, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about your life. Yeah. So that's how I go to it. Instead of asking the question, what has happened to them, and you feel that, like, whole, like, oh, wow. I, right. Yeah, I don't know if that's I, I really appreciate you sharing that, because I think that uh, my friends in 12-step like to say, because they, they have, a lot of 12-step folks have a, a very strong uh, belief in God, you know, so they'll say, there, but for the grace of God, go I, meaning that could be me. That could be me. That person who is sitting across from me coming to me for assistance, that could be me. I could be them in a heartbeat if my circumstances and their circumstances were the same. So I really appreciate you sharing that. So it's like, thanks, because these, these, are the, um, these are the workarounds that we have to employ so that we can open ourselves up 
to other people and feel like we can understand. So I really, I, I thank you for sharing that because um, we are also different and I think that because you work with people you see this and, uh, and that we're also incredibly different, uh, that our karma is different and how we see and hear and think things is different. And so being able to um, allow people to be who they are but at the same time offer them what you have to, uh, to bring them uh, forward is a good thing, so yeah. So at any rate, okay. So um, uh, what, uh, what we'll do now is uh, we'll, um, yeah, uh, we'll sit quietly for just a moment and uh, dedicate the goodness of our time together today. Thank you again just for being here and bringing your sincerity to this place. And uh, I hope you come again. Um, uh, so let's uh, sit quietly and mentally dedicate the goodness of this session, thinking that we dedicate this goodness to all beings who suffer, which is us and everybody else, and that through this goodness, all beings are free from suffering, come to happiness, and then to awakening. And coming to awakening, may they then benefit all beings without exception. We dedicate the goodness with this thought in mind. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. For more information about the Columbus Karma Taksim Choling, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music on this podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.